On this episode of Serverless Chats, I finish my conversation with Rick Houlihan about advanced NoSQL data modeling in DynamoDB. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 35. things that you have never mentioned, or at least I don't think I've ever seen you mention it, uh, at least not in your um, uh, in, in any of your talks for your modeling, uh, is local secondary indexes. Uh-huh, yeah. And I used to think, hey, this is great. They've got really strong guarantees. And then, you know, it's sort of this great use case if you want to do a couple different sorts. Um, but LSIs are not quite... Um, They're not the panacea you might think they are. Yes, yeah. correct. <laughs> so maybe you can tell us a little bit about LSIs. So LSIs are you know, kind of, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I, I think you're, you're exactly correct. The biggest value of LSI is the strong consistency, right? But the, but the limiting factor of the LSI is it doesn't really let you kind of regroup the data, right? They're, right. They're, you, have to, you have to use the same partition key as the table. So the only thing you can really do is resort the data, right? So right there, that's a limited set of use cases, right? There's not a lot of access patterns. I mean, there are, but there's not necessarily a ton of access patterns uh, or applications that only require me to resort the data. Like most applications are going to require to group the data on multiple dimensions. So that that limits the effectiveness of the LSI. Uh, the other thing about the LSI that kind of stinks is they have to be created uh, at the time the table is created. They can never be deleted. Uh, so if you kind of you know mess it up, then you got to recreate the table to get rid of them. Uh, and I find them to be extremely limited use, right? I mean, the the most developers can tell you that you know uh, strong consistency is an absolute requirement, but when you get down to it and start looking at the nature of their application, yeah, what they really need is read after write consistency, right? They don't right. Have to, you know, strong. Let's let's you know it's it's worth kind of talking about the difference, right? Strong consistency implies that no update to the database is going to be acknowledged to the client unless all copies or all indexed you know uh, uh, copies of that data are also updated right yeah that's strong consistency uh, that means if i'm in a highly concurrent environment right that no two clients could read different data okay unless the read is not or the write is not yet fully committed right as long as the write hasn't committed you're not going to get two copies of the data uh, <clears throat> Well, most use cases are really more about like if I make the right and I read back, did I get the right data? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what we're really talking about is read after write consistency. Well, if you think yes. about the round trip between the client and the and the system, right? If I have a let's say in DynamoDB GSI replication is ten milliseconds or less, mm-hmm. you know, it's highly unlikely that you're ever going to be able to return to the client. The client's ever going to be able to return to the server and ask for the same data back in ten milliseconds. And honestly, <laughs> if you do, welcome to distributed systems. That's you know exactly I mean? right. I mean, that's the other thing I was going to say. In most distributed systems, what you'll find is there's a propagation delay on configuration data. So oftentimes, even if you get to the point where the, the, the developers can tell you that there's going to be concurrent access on this data, when you back up a step, <laughs> you're going to yeah, find right. that, that configuration data is going to live in multiple <laughs> entities. So hey, all bets are off, right? So let's really let's take a look at that need for strong consistency and not make arbitrary requirements. Because as developers, when we make arbitrary requirements, you know, it's like hooking a fire hose up to our wallets. So exactly. you know, let's make sure that we're actually making requirements that are meaningful to our business. 90% of the application workloads I work with, I would say even maybe even higher, don't require strong consistency. So let's just use those GSIs. They're much more flexible, right? They can be deleted mm-hmm. any time. They, they, they carry their own capacity allocations. They don't pillage capacity from the table. Um, you know, overall, they're just a lot more flexible. Yeah. And you've got more control. I mean, that's one of those things too. If you are doing, um, you know, the single table design uh, and you're using all those different entity types and so forth, what are the chances that all those LSIs and the sorts all, you know, kind of all align with one another too? It seems like a lot of wasted capacity. And that's the, inevitably you're going to end up using GSIs, right? Right. Exactly. You may be able to use an LSI for one use case, but you can't use them for all of them. Yeah. And I mean, and I think just the important thing about LSIs too is regardless of the inflexibility of them, it also it doubles the cost, right? Well, all indexes double the cost, right? I mean, it, of course, it's actually yeah. one of the things people kind of, uh, it's kind of an uh, incorrect assumption about LSIs is that cu- customers believe that, oh, they use the same capacity as the table, oh, they must be free. <laughs> no, they're not free. You still pay for the storage, you still pay for the capacity. Right. I'm just going to have to allocate twice as much capacity to the table now. Moving on from LSIs and, and GSIs, the, the other thing that always comes up um, is this idea of hot keys or hot partitions um, where 
you basically have you know one key that gets accessed quite a bit. You sort of point this out in, in your slides where you see sort of this big red mark, this sort of heat, um, you know, this uh, this heat map where uh, uh, you get one partition that uh, is is red uh, or is is being accessed quite a bit. Um, so we can talk a little bit about the performance of those things, but I'm actually curious what happens if uh, you know if a partition key exceeds that 10 gigabyte uh, partition limit. Oh sure. Okay. So yeah. So as you pointed out, there's a there's a partition size limit in DynamoDB. There's capacity and throughput limits in DynamoDB. And the reason we chose to do this is because we wanted a system that was responsive and scales in minutes. Right. Uh, the larger systems, like you look at a MongoDB or a DocumentDB that has uh, use very large storage nodes. They have large capacity storage nodes. It takes them a long time to be able to add new capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we wanted was a system when a user could come in and say, go from you know, 10 WCUs to a million WCUs and do that in, in real time, right? Not yeah. months, literally months. Right. Uh, so what happens when a, when a partition exceeds its 10 gigabytes is the system behind the scene is going to say, okay, I need to, get, I need to you know, move this data into multiple storage partitions. So the way that NoSQL databases scale is they're going to add partitions. When they add partitions, they need to copy data to those new partitions in order to be able to bring them online, so to speak. Mm -hmm. If I use extremely large storage nodes, then it takes me a long time to copy that data. Okay. Right. So in, in large NoSQL clusters, I mean, the largest MongoDB cluster is about 64 shards right now. They're adding shard 65. They started in November. They expect to be done sometime in the next couple of weeks. And that's no joke. That is no joke. So <laughs> it's really scary. It's scary. It's really <laughs> scary for your business. I mean, what happens if they see a surge in traffic in the meantime, yep. right? They're just, they're, they're DOA. So, um, and they're actually talking to us to migrate because they know that when they go to add shard 66, it's going to take them nine months, right? So this like, <laughs> is not something that's going to work for their business. Uh, so anyway, so we, we want to be able to scale in minutes and we can do that because we use small storage nodes. When a storage node hits 10 gigabytes, it's going to split into two nodes. Now I can copy five gigabytes of data in literally seconds, right? Yep. So if, and I can do that in parallel n number of times. So this mm -hmm. all, you know, that's how DynamoDB tables scale gracefully is they have these, you know, lots, large number of smaller storage nodes. When you want to add capacity, we just split those storage nodes very quickly in parallel, and we can bring that capacity online in minutes. Uh, and that's that's the advantage there. So that's kind of right. what happens. Yeah. And so that only works, though, if you are not plagued by a local secondary index, though. Ah, yes. Ah, yes. So the local secondary index, <laughs> again, another one of those limiting factors of the local secondary index. Uh, since we only allow you to resort the data, right, not regroup the data, that's what gives us the ability to uh, support strong consistency. But the only way we can do that is to ensure that all the data between the local secondary index and the table actually live on the same partition. So if you have a partition in, in a single logical partition in uh, DynamoDB on a local secondary index that exceeds 10 gigabytes, it's going to throttle the table and stop the writes. Because if, mm -hmm. if you know, think about it, if I resort the data inside of a logical partition and it's larger than 10 gigabytes, then that's automatically going to mean that some of the data lives in two, you know, the data lives in two places. And right. maintaining yep. consistency on two physical hosts is hard. So yeah. we kind of punted on that idea and said, you know, we'll give you consistent indexing, but don't ask for more than 10 gigabytes in a single logical partition. That doesn't mean that an LSI can't be larger than 10 gigabytes. It just means that a single logical partition value cannot contain more than 10 gigabytes of data. Right. And the other thing is, in order for it to split data across multiple nodes, it has to have a sort key. That's correct. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. If you're going to split a single logical partition, I mean, if you don't have a sort key, then you're limited to 400 kilobytes in a single partition because that's the item size limit in DynamoDB. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then um, in terms of throughput performance, if you actually are on multiple nodes, wouldn't you have better throughput? If you're on multiple nodes, yes, you have better throughput. And that is the, that is another advantage DynamoDB with lots of small storage nodes, right? <clears throat> we can increase the throughput of the system uh, more, more easily. Now, we do need to maintain some proportion of throughput to capacity to storage mm -hmm. allocation, right? So if I have a, a storage device, a storage node that has X terabytes of data, and I'm carving that up into 10 gigabyte chunks, I kind of also need to carve up the IOPS as right. well, because otherwise there's no way for me to guarantee that that capacity will be there for you when you come ask for it, right? So that's kind of okay. what we're doing. When you reserve capacity in DynamoDB, it's guaranteed you're going to get it. Uh, and it's up to us to make sure there's enough capacity on the system that, to, to satisfy your request. Right. Uh, but whatever you allocate, there's nobody's going to be able to take that from you. And, and, and nobody's going to brown out your workload because they're too busy and you're sharing a storage node. Yeah. So now if you were to create partitions with 
you know, hundreds of gigabytes of data. Um, it's going to spread and, and split itself across multiple nodes. Right? You, you know, there's, there's sort of a throughput benefit, I think, there, a performance gain, because you're sort of doubling or increasing that throughput. But is that something we should avoid? Like, should we try well, not to create partitions more than 10 gigs? Well, I mean, it's going to be hard to do that, right? <laughs> most most applications, it's going to be, I mean, you've got to have the, the, you've got to have the data to aggregate, right? So, right. I mean, if yeah. I'm partitioning data and I'm saying I want orders by customer, the 10 gigabytes of orders is going to be a lot of orders. So, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's really what it comes down to. I wouldn't say avoid it. Uh, the one thing to be aware of when you're working with those, with the, with the, uh, data moving in and out of these individual logical partitions is you do want to be aware of velocity, mm -hmm. right? How fast am I moving the data in and out? Now having 10 gigabytes of data in a single logical partition is really no big deal. But if I have to read it really quickly, yeah. that's going to be a problem because you're only going to get 3000 RCUs. That's a megabyte a second. So you can only read right. it one megabyte a second. If I got a, if I have a gigabyte of data inside of that logical partition, you know, that's going to take me, you know, a hundred or a thousand seconds to read that gigabyte of data. So if I had 10 gigabytes, yikes, I'm going to be reading for a while. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. You know, we let, you know, this is where we start to talk about write sharding and read sharding. Yeah, sharding. So, yeah. So, yeah. So let's talk about sharding for a second, because that is that is something that um, I think some people see that as, oh, if I want to, you know, be able to read a bunch of data back um, quickly or whatever, I have to, I have to split it up. I have to use some sort of hashing algorithm. Maybe I mm. have to figure out, you know, what, how, how much I want to sort of spread out that key space. Um, but actually there are quite a few benefits to doing that, right? Cause mm -hmm. you can read it in parallel and, and, and things like that. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you want to increase the throughput of any NoSQL database. You talk about parallel access, right? So, uh, in DynamoDB, what we're going to try and do is, you know, if your access pattern exceeds, you know, 1,000 WCUs or 3,000, you know, uh, RCUs for a single logical key. And now bear in mind that I had, it sounds like that's not a lot, but I have architected, I don't even know how many thousands of applications at this point on DynamoDB <laughs> and, and, and write sharding comes into play, like, I don't know, less than 1% of the time, right? So, okay. you know, most, most workloads are just fine with those capacity <laughs> limits, right? And if there was a problem with that, then we would be working to adjust them. We, we just don't see that as being a problem. We see that as being more of a concern uh, that developers might have when they start learning about the system. But when we actually start going into the implementation cycle, what we find is nobody, nobody writes shards. Uh, now that's not to say nobody, some people absolutely need to. And uh, <clears throat> when, but that is just a nature of the beast when you're dealing with NoSQL, right? Because we're dealing with partition data store. If I want to increase throughput, I need to increase the number of storage nodes that are participating. This is true for, you know, every NoSQL database. Uh, sure. It's just that the individual throughput of the storage nodes in a legacy NoSQL technology are, are is higher because they're using entire physical servers is the storage node, whereas DynamoDB takes its physical server and chops it up into a thousand storage nodes, right? Yeah. So, um, and again, the reason we do that is we want to scale gracefully, uh, you know, and, and we found that the write throughput and read throughput settings that we've adopted tend to accommodate the vast majority of workloads. Um, so, you know, again, if your throughput requirements are higher on a per logical key basis, let's talk because it's not yeah. that hard to do, right? It's certainly yeah. it's just a mechanical chore. Once you've kind of implemented that mechanism underneath the data layer API, that most of your developers don't even know what's happening. And I think if you're an application developer and you run into a problem like that, it's a good problem to have yeah, because exactly. obviously you're doing pretty, you're, your <laughs> application is being used. Successful. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So let's move on to denormalization, right? This is another thing I think that um, that trips a lot of people up. We talk about third normal form uh, and stuff like that, that when you're, when you're optimizing a, uh, uh, when you're optimizing a, a regular SQL database, right? We want to split everything up into separate tables and so forth. Um, but in in DynamoDB and NoSQL databases, we are often we often have to denormalize the data, right? We have to put logical data together. Sometimes we have to copy things um, to multiple records. Sometimes we have to copy things into you know the same attribute and, and things like that. So, what are some of the advantages though to denormalization? Uh, it, you know, time complexity on your queries, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to, you know, when we start talking about NoSQL, we're talking about cost efficiency, right? We're talking about, yep. uh, you know, the, the low latency, consistent performance at scale, 
and and the, and the way we get that is through denormalizing the data, right? Because now everything instead of select star from inner join, inner join, inner join, yeah, it's select star from where x equals. Right now, a single table filtered select from a, from a, a relational database is blindingly fast, right? It's, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what we're really doing. No SQL reduces every query to a single table filtered select, and that is why it's going to be faster. And it requires us to denormalize in order to achieve that effect. Yeah, and one of the things that I really like about denormalization um, is that this is something I, you know, I designed uh, SQL databases for a very, very long time, built a lot of applications, a lot of e-commerce uh, products on there. And one of the things that always drove me nuts was you have a history of orders, maybe two years of a, of a customer's order uh, or customer orders, and then they update their email address. Uh, and then suddenly your join, now you have the email address that they currently have, not the email address they had when they placed the order sure. um, because of the way that, that that works. And so unless you're denormalizing data, which is eventually what I ended up doing anyways, right. was to keep right. a record. Yeah, you got to um, have you got to have the history of the you, some of the data is going to be immutable, even if the user changes it. Right. You're going to want right. to know that it was ordered by so and so when they had this name before they were married. Right. And like, what their address yeah, was their at the time was at the time. And what was their phone number when it happened? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you normalize data and you eliminate that data from those records, then you're you're eliminating the ability of the system to keep track of it. And as you pointed out, the only way to do that is to denormalize it, right? And put right. It, and and so at that point, and this is again, actually, it's a good point you bring up because it's one of the things we found at Amazon retail mm -hmm. is that we were denormalizing our data inside of our relational databases to deal with the scale of the system that we were that we were trying to support, right? Like, sure. you know, we couldn't yeah. calculate uh, these common you know, KPIs using queries anymore, things like, you know, the counts on the downloads of the, you know, tracks for Amazon Music, right? I mean, mm -hmm. for a while, they were just select count from download table. Okay. Oh, jeez. Yeah, oh, jeez. <laughs> exactly, right? So I mean, after a while, they're like, oh, well, let's create a roll-up table, and we're going to have, you know, a top-level counter for downloads for the song, and we'll just update that every now and then, mm -hmm. right? I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. But what have you done? You've denormalized the data, right? And yeah. so at this point, then, why am I not using a first-class NoSQL database? I'm trying to turn my relational database into a denormalized data uh, a database. And then the next step you'll see people do, and I see it all the time, we have thousands of RDS customers that are doing doing sharded Postgres, sharded MySQL, Ooh. right? <laughs> I mean, heck, there's things out there. There's technologies people have built, PG router and stuff like yep. this, you know, to be able to support. And I'm telling you, as soon as you shard your relational database, man, you've gone down the road. Let's go, down, right. let's go into gone. NoSQL, right? I can't join that's across right. instances anymore, right? So now, you know, let's let's go back into a database that's built for that, exactly. Yeah, no, and actually one of the, the uh, former startups I was at, um, we we built an entire MySQL cluster that had yeah. um, like a master master um, sort of directory yep. service that would tell you which shard a yep. particular customer was in, yep. and then you were replicating like relationships and yeah. things like that. <laughs> and like, and oh you're oh like, God, wait a minute, yeah. <laughs> why didn't I just store this in one place that I can actually read this data from, exactly um, right. but, uh, exactly but yeah, right. no, so I, I totally feel the pain there. So the, the, the audit trail piece of this, I think is, is something that's really, really interesting. And another thing you had mentioned, um, in your, in your 2019 reInvent talk was this idea of sort of partial normalization mm -hmm. where you might have, and the example you gave was this big insurance quote. And mm -hmm. you said that, you know, you don't want to store copies of the same quote, especially right. if it's big, you right. want to store the same thing over and over and over again. Um, but the uh, immutable data, sure, like things that aren't going to change, like their address probably isn't going to change things like that. Um, but like if you're updating maybe what the the value of the quote is or something like that, yeah. um, you actually talked about breaking those up into smaller attributes. Yeah, yeah. So in that particular example, um, it was an interesting use case. We had a customer very happy with the system. They were insurance service. Uh, they had about 800 quotes per minute, I think was their update rate. They were provisioning about 1,000 WCUs. And uh, their use case was pretty simple. Users came in, they create an insurance quote, they might edit that quote two or three times, and they'll go ahead and execute the contract or drop the, the, the transaction. And uh, every the way they were kind of storing the data is they'd have the, the, the customer ID was the partition key, uh, the quote ID and version was the sort key. And if they came in to get a particular quote, they'd say, okay, select star from customer ID where quote ID starts with, or where sort key starts with quote ID. And they would get the uh, quote and all the versions of that quote. And then the customer could go back and page through them. Mm -hmm. uh, 
the thing was each one of those items was 50 kilobytes, 99% of the data in those items never changed. So every time yeah. they created a version of the quote, they're storing 50 kilobytes of data. That's, you know, what really existed in the last version, right? So yeah. uh, that's basically why I basically recommended to him was, hey, you know, create the first version of the quote and then store deltas, right? Every time someone changes something, just store what changed. Mm-hmm. Now, when you go use the same query, you know, uh, where customer ID equals X starts with quote ID, but what you're getting is the top level quote and all the deltas, and then the client side, you can just quickly apply the deltas and show them the current version. And then whenever they need to see the previous versions, you just back the deltas off as they back through the various versions of the of the, of the quote. So this caused a, a significant decrease in their WCU provisioning. I think they went from 1,000 WCUs provisioned to 50. Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> that was 95% reduction. Right. So it was a really good example of how, you know, understanding that, you know, don't, don't store data you don't need to store, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, denormalization doesn't always mean copying data, right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and this is a really good example of how you can, you know, uh, look at, at, at what you're doing with your data. How is the data moving through the system, right? Because mm-hmm. this is really oftentimes what we find is, we're reading data we don't need to read. We're writing data we don't need to write. You know, one of the biggest problems we see in NoSQL, and it's facilitated by the databases that support these really, really large objects, right? Things like, you know, I think MongoDB supports a 16 megabyte document, right? Yeah. And the reality is that uh, I don't know very many access patterns. And again, I've worked with thousands of applications at this point sure. that, that need to get 16 megabytes of data in a, in a single request, right? But so oftentimes you'll see in MongoDB these really giant, data blobs and users are, are going and say, get me the, you know, the age of this user. And they'll, <laughs> they'll, they'll reach into this big giant data blob and, and they'll pull out a, a four byte int, right? Yeah. And you have and, to read the whole thing. You have to read yeah, the whole thing in order to get it. Yeah. To get this four byte in, right? So, so one of the things I do quite frequently is I work with a lot of customers on legacy NoSQL technologies like MongoDB or Cassandra mm-hmm. or Couchbase. And, and I'll actually get them to, 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 to the correct modeling state of their application. And so they'll come to me and they'll talk to me about migrating to DynamoDB. And when I'm done, they end up staying on MongoDB. And they, you know, I'll talk to them again in a year when they actually, actually when they actually do have to scale. But, but you know what I mean? It's like it's it's nice because the, the the design patterns, best practices, and data modeling that we've built and that we've developed over the years at you know working with the CDO and doing that large migration, it turns out that all of that stuff is directly trans translatable to every NoSQL technology. Sure. And what it really exposed was how wrong. You know the, the the implementation philosophy is, and and how much of the industry is revolving around some really incorrect assumptions mm-hmm. and things that they say, right? And it's it, it was it was an eye opener to go through that. It was crazy. I was one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, I think that's that's what's what's really great is the uh, to see the thinking evolve though, yeah. and sort of get to that point. Yeah. Um, so I I, I want to move on to something else just quickly. The, the the back to that quote thing. So one of the things you had mentioned too is this idea of pushing a lot of that complexity in terms of maybe reassembling the quote, like pushing that down to the client. Mm-hmm. So is that something you? So what? What's yeah, yeah, the, no, absolutely. You know what? Those clients are ninety nine point nine percent idle loop, man. Make them do some work, right? I mean, we do right. this a lot. I, I've got some reservation use cases where. You know, I was talking to some customers and, and maybe they were creating items in the database in the table, for, you know, an item for each one of the availabilities in the calendar or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then they would come in and they would update that item with who booked it. And I was like, don't do that. Right. Just 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 store the items that people booked. And then on right. the client side, when they just say, here's you know the day that I want to book an appointment for, send them down the things that have booked and let them figure out what slots are available. Which ones right? not. <laughs> right. yeah. Otherwise, go. I got to do a more complex query to kind of figure out which items are available and which items have been booked. You know, And I got more work to do at the application server. I'm a big fan of pushing whatever logic I can down to the endpoint. Right? Give them a chunk of data and let them triage this. Give them enough data to do the two or three things that I know they're about to do as soon as they make that request. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's a way better uh, experience for the end user to have a, a responsive application, right? Maybe yeah. preload some of that data, right? So that they, so that they know, I, I know 99% of the users that come in here when they ask for this, the next thing they hit is that. Okay, great. Yeah. Or, or the next thing they hit is one of these three things. Great. Guess what? They're going to get all three of those things, you know, uh, and, it, and it saves round trips to the server. And what are we talking about? Most of the time we're talking about pushing down a couple kilobytes of data. Right. And that's right. It's not a ton of data. It's nothing. So that's get it down there. Yeah. 
And now with 5G on your mobile devices. I, I know. Mean, you know. And, and unlimited <laughs> data plans and all these things. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. So you mentioned you mentioned uh, MongoDB and you mentioned Cassandra. And obviously one of the new things that was announced was managed Cassandra. Sure. Um, you know, so I know there are the characteristics are very much so uh, are very similar to DynamoDB. But other than somebody sort of already using Cassandra, why would you use the managed Cassandra um, you know, what would be the reason for, would you, would you start with that or would you, would you just suggest people start with DynamoDB? I, I think what the managed Cassandra service is awesome. Okay. It's actually DynamoDB DNA. So, you know, when you, you're using the managed Cassandra service, you're using the backing, a lot of the backing infrastructure from DynamoDB, but it's not DynamoDB. Uh, mm -hmm. It's actually 100% full version of the open source, you know, Cassandra as what we did basically did was replace the DynamoDB request router uh, with the Cassandra instance. Uh, it's fully managed in the back end. So uh, it's actually a really neat piece of technology. I love how they did the implementation. However, it is more expensive for us to run those Cassandra front ends than it is the DynamoDB head node. So as a result, the Cassandra cluster MCS is going to be sig not significantly, but it will be noticeably more expensive mm -hmm. you know, than DynamoDB. So if I was looking at a brand new workload today, I'd go DynamoDB first. <laughs> That's still our yeah. approach. It always has been our approach. I mean, we release document DB for a subset of customers that have the need to you know, have a fully managed MongoDB solution. Uh, they don't necessarily want to you know, pay two vendors, right? If you go to Atlas, right. you're kind of paying MongoDB and paying us through MongoDB. Uh, they wanted an AWS native managed solution. So we did that for them. Uh, however, we are still running a DynamoDB first you know, philosophy and, and for all the reasons that we've talked about in the past, right? Cost efficiency, scale of the service, the, you know, robust nature of the, of the system. It's unparalleled. It's unmatched. Uh, right. You get a lot of that with MCS. You get almost all of it. As a matter of fact, you do get all of it, <laughs> but you're paying a premium for that managed Cassandra head mode. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm just wondering too, because I mean, we hear, we hear all this stuff about people who want to be multi-cloud and they want, you know, to be some sort of vendor agnostic or something like that, which again, if you were to choose Cassandra, you're still locking yourself into a vendor. But um, <laughs> I wonder, I just wonder if it's something that would help, um, you know, maybe customers that don't consider DynamoDB first, that this might be. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, if you are hung up on a, on a cloud agnostic or vendor agnostic, I guess, like you said, vendor agnostic, what does that mean when I choose, right. you know, Cassandra or MongoDB, but whatever. Uh, I mean, I think what they're really worried about is cloud agnostic, right? They want to, and I'd see this is a FUD factor argument for legacy technology providers, right? I mean, when you go to the cloud, you got two choices, right? I can lift and shift my existing data center and deploy exactly as is, and I'll never know the difference. And I've done it. I've, I've taken very complex enterprise IT infrastructures and recreated them 100% to the point where the IT admins have no idea that they're not working on their whatever on-prem facility, right? It looks exactly the same. Okay. Now, that's not a really great way to use the cloud, right? I mean, you're not going to maximize your benefit, right? You're probably going to see a slight cost benefit, maybe even not a cost benefit, right? Because you're, you're really not taking advantage of any of those cloud native services that are giving the elasticity and the consumption-based pricing and all the things that you need in the cloud. So, you know, mm -hmm. and with databases, right? If you think about this, what, you know, it's not the database that locks you in, it's the data. Right. When right. I deploy 10 terabytes of data someplace, I'm locked in. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, matter if exactly. I'm on MongoDB or Cassandra or whatever. If I want to go somewhere else, I got to move the data. That takes a long time. Right. right. Uh, and then the third factor to look at here is that once you boil down your NoSQL to the, you know, the, the lowest common denominator, which is the data model, mm -hmm. uh, none of those other fancy features matter. As a matter of fact, right. those are the things you never want to use. Things like aggregation framework or, or nickel or any of these other query languages. Now, CQL, I'm not going to say that because CQL did the right thing. They actually said, mm -hmm. you know, we're not going to try and implement join operators here. We're not going to give people <laughs> yeah, the ability to, to modify the data. We're just giving them a nice, familiar syntax to select their items. I like that. Okay, I mm -hmm. really like that. But if you look at like nickel or you look at, you know, MongoDB's aggregation framework, uh, you know, the bane of my existence at MongoDB was going around and dealing with customers and all those terrible aggregation queries and unwinding all that stuff and changing their data models to be more, you know, efficient. Uh, and, you know, you really don't want to use that stuff. So, right. uh, <laughs> you know, anyways, when you boil it down to that lowest common denominator, it doesn't really matter if I'm using Cassandra, MongoDB, DynamoDB, or Cosmos DB, who cares? It's all, the, the data model is the data model and it's all select star where X equals and they all do that just as well as each other.
Right. Yeah. yeah. And I actually, so, I mean, my, my recommendation would always be just because I've been working with it for a while. I really do love Dynamo DB, but um, I worked with Cassandra and I had to sort of peripherally manage the Cassandra yeah, ring. Yeah. Oh. Um, and it was, uh, and I can say uh, using Cassandra was great, right? It was, you know, no yeah. sequel was, was yeah. good, documented, but, but the, uh, but uh, managing it was, um, was not fun. So, yeah. um, at the very least, um, you know, having a managed service is a is a nice alternative to somebody who is sure. really sort of uh, hell bent on on using Cassandra. So, um, so, anyways, all right. So, I actually got a couple of questions from uh, a few people that um, I'd love to love to ask you and just sort of just give me a brief, um, you know, sort of a, a, a you know, just your your two cents on some of these things. Now, uh, one of them was about analytics, right? And we talked earlier, um, you know, about the difference between relational databases and NoSQL. Obviously, you're not running a lot of um, analytics workloads on NoSQL, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we have DynamoDB streams, mm -hmm. right? We have the ability to do scans and exporting data and some of that stuff. So just what are some of the best practices when it comes to, sure. um, you know, taking that data and, and being able to, to analyze query, it? Absolutely. Yep. So, you know, you hit the good points there, streams. Uh, for operational analytics, things that need kind of real-time aggregations, when we're looking at like top end, last end, counts, sums, averages, computed KPIs. Um, streams and Lambda is your friend, right? I mean, Streams is the running change log of DynamoDB. It's like a change data capture pipeline that's built into the process, built into the system. Uh, and so when you update the DynamoDB table with either a write or an update or a delete, any write operation, it's going to show up on the stream, which causes a trigger to fire. And that trigger can be picked up by a Lambda function. And the Lambda function can process that change and update any operational metrics that are affected by that change. So um, this is a really neat system because there's 100% SLA guarantee between the update to the table, the write to the stream, and the fire of the Lambda function. It's going to process every single update at least once. Mm -hmm. And so this is really you know, useful for customers who are trying to uh, maintain these operational analytics because you're guaranteed the processing, right? If you try and right. process it all yourself, Eh, you know, I mean, how processes die, right? If you if you manage to update the table, but not your analytics, then you know you're you're, you're not going to be able to make sure that happens. We'll make sure that happens for you. So that's really neat. Uh, the other process you get is like you said, you can table scan, export. But one of the things I see people do a lot is they just actually snapshot the table. Because mm -hmm. one of the nice things about uh, table snapshots is they're fully consistent, right? A table scan is not necessarily consistent, right? It starts at the first item and ends at the last item. If anything changed in between, right? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so if you, do a, if you do a snapshot, then you can restore that to a new table and then you can table scan that new table and it's like a point in time picture uh, yeah. of your storage, which is really what most people want when they're running these types of you know, offline analytics, right? And so you're going you're gonna to snapshot this thing, you're going to restore it to this new table, and then you can go ahead and export it to S3 as Parquet files. You can run Athena queries on top of this thing and do whatever you want. That's not the most efficient way to query the data, but it's highly effective. And mm -hmm. so what you have is a kind of a, a report that doesn't run with high frequency, that can be a really, really nice solution for you because you don't have to export it into a relational database or even put it into right. Redshift or anything. Yeah. Now, if you're running constant, you know, queries against this data, then maybe a regular process to, you know, using streams, Lambda to kind of export the data in real time into a relational database to maintain kind of a synchronized view, so to speak, mm -hmm. as a normalized structure that you can run ad hoc queries against. I see that a lot too, right? So, you know, depending on you know, the nature of the system and the, and the requirements of the, of the analytics, we can handle it, uh, but let's just make sure we do it the right way uh, so that those, you know, we don't want to end up having to run a lot of, uh, you know, op a lot of random analytics queries on the NoSQL database. It's just not going to do it, right? It's right. not going to do it well. Yeah. And one of the, and, and I mean, sort of the, the, I guess the, the mindset that I follow is if I'm doing time series data or something that is immutable, right? It's just not mm -hmm. going to change. Just yeah. writing the data in. Um, I like to dump that into like Kinesis Data Firehose sure. and maybe S3 and then be able to query with Athena. Um, but I absolutely love when I use operational type data, mm -hmm. you know, where it's a lot of CRUD type stuff yeah. um, that's happening. Um, just copying that over into a SQL database. So I have all that flexibility, yeah. but from an operational standpoint, that's my source of truth. And that thing yeah, is no, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The, uh, now the, as far as the time series data goes, that's a really good use case for Dynamo. We'll see a lot of people roll that time series data in, use that streams uh, Lambda processing to update those partitioned analytics, right? Top mm -hmm. end, last end, max yep. min, all that stuff. And then they'll age out 
the the the, the actual item data, right? And do right. exactly what you said. So they'll TTL that data off the table. It'll roll up into S3, go into Parquet files, and sit in S3. And mm-hmm. then when they need to query it, they just select the top level rollups out of DynamoDB. If they need to do some kind of ad hoc query, then they do exactly what you said, run the Athena queries and whatnot. But for their summary aggregations, they're still serving that up out of DynamoDB. They're just right. doing it, and it works really well, like you said, because once those time bound partitions are loaded. And they're loaded. They're in chain. <laughs> so why calculate right. that data every single time, right? Exactly. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things you mentioned about streams too is that it guarantees at least once processing. So yeah. you still have to think about item potency and some Correct. of those other things if you're updating something else. I mean, are there any best practices that you can think of for that or? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just always a one-off, right? I mean, it depends on the nature of the com- computation. Some computations aren't even affected if you process it multiple times. Others, you're going to want to make sure that you included this in the average already, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, usually what I'll do is, you know, maintain track of items, events that have processed, what were the last N events or something like that, so that if something processes twice, I'll see that it, it actually made the update. Uh, write the configuration data that normally would write from the, Lambda function, you know, these things are processing in order on a per item basis. If you have per item metrics, you can always record the last ID, right? So that when you come to update again, make sure that the ID isn't equal to my ID. (laughs) If it is fail, right? Right? I mean, there's a, it's basically, it's going to be some trick somewhere, somehow, you know, oftentimes I end up tagging a UUID onto the items that I can use in exactly that way. So that I know it processed, it processed, right? And, uh, you know, that way bounce those double processings. Now, Again, it doesn't happen very often. I mean, like one in a million is going to, and hell, you could run for months and never see it. But, never see yeah, it. Yeah, but of course, there's going to be that one random time where the lightning hit the data center and the and the right. container crashed, and you know the thing was in the middle of your lambda process, right? So you and you it's have to always it, right? it's always the customer who pours over their data that's uh-huh. going to find yeah, that gonna one. Gonna it. Exactly, he's going <laughs> to notice it, right? Exactly. Um, uh, All right. So uh, another question that I got was the performance impact of transactions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So transactions are heavy, right? There's no doubt about it. It's basically a multi-phase commit across multiple items. So uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's about 3x the cost. Right to okay. of the normal insert. So be aware of that when you're using the transact write API. If you have the need for that kind of strongly consistent update, <clears throat> uh, then let's do that. But there's a couple caveats to transactions people need to be aware of. First off, is the isolation level is low. So this does not prevent you from seeing the changes on the table, right? You will see those changes appear across the table. If someone selects an item that's in the middle of a transaction, they will see it. Nothing blocks the read. Um, so, you know, if that's as long as that type of transactional functionality is, is, is right for you, and that's really what we're doing, we're giving you an acid guarantee. It's an acid guarantee with a low level of isolation. You also get essentially the same acid guarantee from a GSI replication. And that is guaranteed, and it doesn't cost you any more than the cost of the write and the cost of the throughput. So, you know, again, if, as long as the consistency at the client, really, that's what the, that's what transactions gives you. It, you won't acknowledge the write to the client until all the updates have occurred. That is the only yep. difference between uh, a transact write API and a GSI replication, right? So, if that, that guarantee is something you absolutely have to have, uh, then great. And, and and there are plenty of use cases for that, right? Like I want to block until I know that all you know copies of this item have been updated. I don't want right. the workflow yep. to continue until X, right? Great, no problem. But let's talk transact right API. And that should be a real subset of your use cases. I wouldn't use it by default. All right. And then what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people make with um, modeling? And we only have a few more minutes. So sure. yeah, no problem. Hey, look, the biggest mistake, hands down, we use multiple tables, right? I mean, and 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 the bottom line is, uh, multi-table designs are never going to be efficient in NoSQL. Uh, you know, matter what, you know, no matter what the scale. I mean, you could have the smallest application that you're working with. You can have, you know, the largest application you're working with. It's just going to get worse, right? The, the small application, you might not notice the cost that you're paying, but <clears throat> you will pay more. And honestly, it's not easier to write data, write the application for a multi-table design, right? It's just not. I have to write, you know, uh, multiple queries. I have to execute multiple requests. I have a lot more code that I have. I mean, if you want to compare code, it's going to explode the code to run multiple tables, right? So you're going to be running with less code, less complexity, more efficiency with a single table design. Uh, Let's learn how to use that. I think that's really the big uh, big biggest mistake I see people make. The bottom line is, if you can't get over that, then stick with your relational database. 
you're going to be way better off, right? So I would definitely advocate that if you're saying that my app's too small and I don't need a single table, then, okay, your app's too small. You don't need no SQL, right? <laughs> so. Um, so what about like uh, relational modeling? Is that something you see quite a you know, quite a few people doing. Oh, the relational modeling in NoSQL? Yes, I'd probably yeah. say 90% of the applications I see for NoSQL like single items, right? There, there's not a lot of highly relational data. Uh, <clears throat> I would say that, uh, you know, the majority of applications, probably about 50 to 60% of the applications that we migrated at, at Amazon were had a, a fairly significant relational model. And mm -hmm. that was because we were taking, you know, we were under a, a, an edict that basically every app that we had, all of our tier one applications, most of our tier two applications were moving to NoSQL and there was no choice, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, in, in across customers, I'm seeing a larger number of apps these days. I'm seeing people start to realize that, hey, you know what? We can manage this relational data. It's just, it's not non-relational. It's denormalized, right? I think people are starting mm -hmm. to understand that that non-relational term is a misnomer and that we're really just looking at a different way of modeling the data. So you're starting to see more complex relational data in these NoSQL databases, which I'm really glad to see. Uh, and I expect that trend will continue. Right, and then the other thing I think you've mentioned in the past too is, uh, you know, we talked about it a bit with that partial normalization on the insurance quote is, you know, storing really large objects. Yeah, yeah, don't don't store the don't use large objects unless you need them, right? I mean, if the access pattern is I need all this data all the time, then great. Use the biggest objects you can. It actually drives a lot of efficiency. But generally speaking, I don't see that, right? Most applications need little small chunks of data, right? This couple rows from that table, this couple rows from that table. They don't need you know, the entire hierarchy of data that, that, that comprises this, this entity in the application space, right? And so if you're storing blobs of data that represent you know, every single thing that could ever be related to X, then the chances are that you're actually working and, and using a lot more you know, throughput and storage capacity than you need. Yeah. And I think the, the thing to remember about that too, is you're not paying for the number of items you read, right. you're paying for the amount of data that's that right. you read. And that's so the, yeah, that is the case with yeah. every NoSQL database. Exactly. Right. And so what's cool about that too, is, I mean, if you go back to that, those GSIs, um, you may have certain attributes, you know, in a document, some of which you have to index a different way, you can use sparse indexes and only replicate some of those attributes yes. or some of that data to another index. That's correct, absolutely. And you can you can pick and choose which pieces of that hierarchy end up getting projected onto those indexes, absolutely. Right. So optimize for the right, right? That's another sort of uh, uh, main thing to think about, the velocity of the workload and so forth. Those are choice, the- uh, right? It's a choice, yeah. right? It's optimized for the read or for the right, depends on the velocity of the workload, depends on the nature of the access pattern. You know, if I, there could be times I wanna do one versus the other. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, just a couple more questions here, but I, I think it's really interesting. Um, and I had posted something about this a while back. Um, and you had mentioned, you know, all the, the applications that you moved over from Amazon.com uh, to, uh, to NoSQL. Um, you know, what are those numbers look like, right? Because I think a lot of people are like, well, maybe I, you know, maybe I can't use DynamoDB or something like that. And I always say, well, if Amazon can fit 90% of their workloads into DynamoDB, <laughs> you probably can too. Yeah. Um, so just do you do you have some of those numbers like what what has the growth been like sure. and what, what how, how much yeah. data do you process on a, on a given day or whatever? Yeah, sure. So so raw numbers. I mean, if you want to just think transactions per second, at, at uh, 2017 Prime Day, we peaked uh, Amazon tables peaked at about 12.9 million transactions per second. We thought that was pretty big. Uh, that was 2017. In 2019, yeah. Amazon CDO tables uh, yeah, peaked at 54.5 million transactions per second. Right? <laughs> so it's an, thing is your so somebody else's application can probably they can be probably just fine using DynamoDB. And this is the thing. So we get this question a lot. I mean, I get the question of you know. Uh, it, it, is DynamoDB powerful enough for my app? Well, absolutely. I, as a matter of fact, it's the most scaled out NoSQL database in the world. Nothing does anything like what Dy Dy DynamoDB has delivered. I, I know single tables delivering over 11 million WCUs. You know, it, it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and then the other question is, is not DynamoDB too much overkill? for the application that I'm building. And, uh, you know, I think we have great examples across the CDO of services. Not every one of our services is massively scaled out. Hell, I've got services out there. I've got five gigabytes of data, right? Yeah. So, and, and they're all using DynamoDB. And the reason why I used to think that NoSQL was the domain of the large scaled out high performance application, but with cloud native NoSQL, when you look at the consumption-based pricing and the pay per use and auto scaling and on demand, 
I, I just think you'd be crazy if you have an OLTP application, you'd be crazy to deploy on anything else. Yeah. Because you know, you're just going to pay a fraction of the cost. I mean, literally, whatever that EC2 instance costs you, I will charge you 10% to run the same workload on DynamoDB. Yeah. And actually, like, I, I really like this idea, too, of using it in just even small applications as sort of a, a, a very powerful data store that, yeah, if for some reason I happen to get 54 million transactions per second at yeah, some point, yeah. I, I can do I, it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most likely I'm going to have like 10 transactions right. per minute or right. something on some of these smaller things. Um, but I always love the fact that DynamoDB tables are such easy. They're so easy to spin up. Right. And again, right. You, you can add GSI. But if I think about building microservices, especially with serverless applications, um, I don't want to be spinning up a separate RDS cluster or Aurora yeah, serverless yeah, for every replica set. Or yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it's just it, it's crazy. And if, if most of what I can do, if if my workloads fit, if my access patterns fit, and there are some that don't, but um, but yeah, I just I I love it as sort of this like go to data store that you can do all these great things in. And the other thing is, is that if you do have some slightly complex queries that you need to run, but it is small scale. Couple of ex indexes don't cost a lot of yeah, money. Couple indexes, so. heck, you know, processing data in memory doesn't cost much money. I mean, the best example right. is in what the community tells us. I got a, a tweet from a customer the other day. Said he told me just deprecated his MongoDB cluster. Uh, had three small instances. They were costing about five hundred dollars a month. It took him twenty four hours to write the code to migrate the data and migrate the data. He switched it yeah. all over to DynamoDB. He's paying fifty dollars a month. Jeez. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's just, it's amazing when you look at yep. it. I mean, and when you think yep. about it, it's like that actually makes sense because the average data center utilization of, a, of an enterprise application today is about 12%. Right. Yeah. That means 88% of your money is getting burned into the, into the vapor, you know, right. and, and, and you're paying those people to maintain the, you're paying oh, those ops people to maintain that. Half of that exactly. Right. And that's the right. thing. So this guy is like, you know, Hey, I'm saving 90% of my base cost. And that didn't even calculate his human cost right. of yeah. maintaining all those systems. Right. So, which is likely much more expensive than, than the 500 bucks a month. And right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I will just tell you, I, I actually, uh, I had a small data center. I, I, I uh, had a co-location facility that I, that I used when I had a hosting company, when I was doing a web development company and I used to go there and swap out drives and do all that kind of stuff. I can tell you right now, Amazon or AWS can do it a lot better than you can, right? <laughs> so, we've been doing it for a while now. Right, exactly. I, I, I pretty much the scale that blows anybody else out of the water, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly, exactly. Exactly. So definitely a wise choice to do that. All right. Um, so let's move on to tools for development, right? Sure. So there's the NoSQL Workbench. I've been playing around with it. Um, very cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love this thing. This was a tool, uh, again, I, I said it at reInvent, built by the specialists for the specialists. Uh, the North American Specialist SA team had been spending a significant amount of time you know, plowing around in Excel, manually creating you know, GSI views for customers yeah. to demonstrate to them how these things will work. It's, it's an it's a error-prone process. It's a pain, you know, I mean, to try and create those pivot tables. It's like, look, you're mm -hmm. copying data out. Oh, did I get the keys, right? Is the sort order right? You know, all this kind of stuff, right? Whereas with this, what you do is the, those NoSQL workbench for DynamoDB, you're just going to just take a, 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 a bunch of JSON data. You can load it into the tool. It gives you a nice view of what the aggregate looks like based on the partition key and sort keys that you configure in the tables. It gives you uh, all your GSI views. That's the best mm -hmm. part about it. As you go from GSI to GSI to GSI, it pivots the data automatically. So you, you, know, you can put the sample data in and then you can visualize what happens when I translate that data across multiple indexes uh, and, and see what those sorts look like. Um, you know, it has a code generator. I don't know if you had a chance to play with that yet, but you can, oh, it's really nice. Because, you know, I mean, one of the biggest problems in dealing with any database development is, you know, writing the queries, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's like we all know what conditions we need. Okay, write the code, make sure that there's no errors, everything's correct, you know, and and, and the code generator for Dynam for the workbench basically lets you just set query conditions and hit the button, and it yep. generates all the code for your application. You can just cut and paste. It actually generates a runnable, runnable executable. It does, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that right, you can yep. you can validate it from the console. Just go ahead and run it. Yep, works. Okay, great. You can embed it in your application. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that's great about it too is, and I think this is um, something that because there's no interface to do this yet, or, um, and you still have to edit the JSON manually, is the uh, or are the facets. Right. Um, and I've been playing around with those a little bit. I'm sure you'll have the ability to do it through an interface, you know, the download and stuff. But um, the facets are actually really cool because this, I think, will be helpful to people who are thinking about entity-based type Correct. stuff. So 
sort of create this new entity for each different you know facet for each type of entity. You go in, you can enter data for each facet, Correct. which and it, it maps or aliases your PK and your SK. Yes. Um, it just it, it just makes a lot more sense, I think, than people just entering everything into well, one big table. You, you hit the nail on the head there, right? Facets were intended to be the entities in your model, right? For each type of object that you have on the table, that's a facet, right? Yes. Now we I expect that over time the functionality of facets is going to grow. It's going to start to align well with like data migration, right? Where customers want to move from a relational database into yes. you know, Workbench, and we're going to start to provide tooling to help them do this. Uh, that will help them translate their normalized relational models into a single table and keep them in the context they're used to mentally, right? right. Because these items are related to those items. Here's a one-to-one. Here's a one-to-many. Here's a many-to-many. I'll create all my facets. One of the facets is my lookup table, right? They're just, just to kind of help people mentally organize their data the way yeah. they like. Because we get that question a lot. When I put all my data in this table, how do I visualize it? Right. Okay. Right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. So, all right. So then other tools, um, there's the best practices guide. Um, what else on, on the AWS site? Mm -hmm. Um, there's some courses out there, the yep. Linux Academy course. Yep, Linux Academy, um, we just put that new course out that was published just last year. It incorporates all of our best practices and design patterns is completely updated content. Um, you know, we've got, of course, my content online. Uh, there's some great content from the community out there. Alex Debris has some really good content out there for mm -hmm. people to pick up. Uh, and uh, we've got a couple of books on the in the in the queue here so look yeah i heard <laughs> I, know, and I know that i know alex is alex debris is writing a book right. and then i think you said uh, i'm not going to be outdone by alex debris <laughs> i'm also going to write a book so yeah. you have a book you're working on as yeah, well we do as a matter of fact i got uh, we were actually incorporate we're include we're, we're we're leveraging the entire uh, uh north american specialist sa team at aws they're all oh, wow. they're all contributing content i'm going to be editing the content i'll probably write the foreword and uh, look for that to come out sometime probably early next year i think is when that's going to hit yeah. awesome yeah. all right so rick listen i i mean honestly it's been absolutely awesome to have you yeah, here thanks. um I, I will say i don't think i would have ever discovered or found a love for NoSQL and, and DynamoDB if it wasn't for uh, you know for the for the the presentations that you've done and and the uh, and and the work that you've done. So um, I really appreciate it. I know everyone um, that's listening and and everybody in the sort of the DynamoDB community is uh, very appreciative of the work you did. So um, so again, thank you so much for being here. So if people do want to find out more about you, follow you or whatever, how do they do that? Sure, you can hit me up on Twitter, Hulahan underscore Rick, and uh, or hit me up on LinkedIn, and uh, we can connect there. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. It's been great. All right. Thanks, Rick. All right. Thanks. Bye. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Rick Houlihan for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 35. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. Yeah.